Here we go. Belief and truth or reality are two different things. Belief is an acceptance that something is true. Truth, however, is the quality or state of actually being true or existing. Okay? One is an acceptance that something or someone, perhaps, is true, and the other is what is actually true. So conviction is closely related to belief with added fervor. So it's a firmly held belief. What we have done, particularly in the West, is encouraged belief rather than truth, traditionally. Belief and truth are actually designed to go together, ideally, but only when truth is the anchoring virtue, not conviction toward a belief that has created its own truth. So I'm going to break this down. I know this is a lot, but y'all just hang with me for a second. Belief has the power to create false realities, perspectives, and worlds that are so bought into that they appear as truth. Belief, conviction, has that power. So, so let me, just for an example, we, we have a habit in, in just our modern culture of teaching belief systems as if they are truth. Okay? Belief systems are designed to be truth as long as the truth that they believe in is the right truth. Right? That makes sense? So, what I believe the Lord is moving us into is a place where He's redefining not our beliefs, He's redefining the truth so that our beliefs can submit to the right truth. Okay, for example, let me get, just give you an example of this. Hitler was a great speaker and had the ability to win people over by what he said. Though a ma- or, excuse me, through a mass prop- propaganda campaign, Hitler won the support of much of Germany. But that mass belief in a representation or a self-defined truth of Germany in his ideas led to the massacre of 11 million Jews. Hitler and all of his supporters believed their ideology was complete truth and built an entire reality around it, even though it was a complete lie. So, do you see the, so you see the difference here? Is that belief, without being rooted in the correct truth that it accepts, is not only wrong, it's deadly. So what I'm not saying is that we have to know it all. What I'm actually saying is the opposite. I'm saying because we don't know, And I believe, and I would argue, we should not yet know it all. Because of that, we need to be careful what truth we have built an entire reality around. We are okay editing truth to fit our belief system, which is our preconceived, traditional idea of what truth is. We're completely okay editing truth to fit what we believe. Right, We just saw this in, in November through elections. We've seen this all throughout the past year. We're okay editing what is true so that it matches or argues for what we believe. Okay, We are usually unwilling to let our beliefs be edited to submit to real orthodox truth. There is only one truth. Not many, not individual truths. Not your own truth. Your truth is your truth. No, no, no. no. There's one. And Jesus said it was him. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one gets there except through me. So there's one truth, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Okay. Don't fall asleep on me. This is going to get good. The unity of the church and attaining perfect knowledge of the Son of God, which Ephesians says we're designed for, can only happen when we desire truth more than upkeeping our traditional beliefs. I'm going to have to amen myself a lot today. Okay. What Yahweh, by way of Holy Spirit, is doing right now is a direct teaching of truth. Who He is, 
what we, where we came from, who we are because of the resurrection, etc. What all we, we've been walking through a lot lately. If we're not careful, we will see this through the lens of our inherited, insufficient, at best, beliefs. And so edit his revelation that the truth of it becomes a lie. Let me give you a definite. My definition of a lie is this. A lie is something that poses as truth without being true at all. So the enemy, father of lies, doesn't come to us and say, hey, what I'm about to tell you is a complete lie, but you should do this. No, it's what I'm about to tell you is completely legit, so you should do this. Right? Adam and Eve, you know, I know he said you would die, but you're not going to die. He just didn't want you to be like him. Right? Complete lie, but passed on as truth. So that's what a lie, a lie is, something that poses as truth without being true at all. We believe a lot of lies about God. And we believe thus a lot of lies about us. And have shaped an entire religious system around some of them. These never presented themselves as lies or we would have immediately rejected them. No, they all posed as truth that we built beliefs on. So in love, Yahweh is redeeming truth within this family and others. But in order to introduce truth, it will require that which we have built a lot of our beliefs on to fail. Praise God. Romans 12 says this. I'm going to read this in two different translations. One translation says this, Romans 12, 2. Do not allow current religious tradition to mold you into its pattern of reasoning. Like an inspired artist, give attention to the detail of God's desire to find expression in you. Become acquainted with perfection to accommodate yourself to the delight and good pleasure of Him will transform your thoughts afresh with Him. That's one translation. The other translation, I'm going to read this from the complete Jewish Bible because this is bad to the bone. Listen to this. Do not let yourself be conformed to the standards of this age. Most of your Bibles say do not be conformed to the world, the image of the world, the standard of the world. Um, That word is not world. The word traditionally translated world is, in the New Testament is the Greek word cosmos, where we get the word cosmos from. So, for God so loved, in John 3, 16, the world that he gave his only son, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Every time, that Greek word is cosmos. Here, in Romans 12, 2, it is not cosmos. That has been stretched. I mean, a gigantic stretch. The actual translation is an age. A, point, a period of time. That's what the translation is. So do not let yourself be conformed to the standards of this current age, particularly the one Paul is writing to in the book of Romans. Instead, keep letting yourself be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How are we transformed? Where does it start? How we think. That's why Jesus said, repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've taught this over and over and over. Repent is not penance. It's not you slap yourself on the wrist until you feel better about what you've done. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing how you think. In fact, the more accurate translation is a co-knowing. So you thinking like he thinks. So when you repent, you're laying down how you've seen yourself, how you've seen God, how you've seen whatever you're walking through, and you are inheriting how God sees all of those things. That's what repentance is. But it's a change in how we think. So Yahweh is always tinkering with how we think because how we think out of that flows our beliefs. And out of our beliefs flows what we're passionate about, what we pursue, what type of family we become, what type of family you have at your own house. All of that flows from your beliefs, but your beliefs flow from your truth. So if our truth is off, Our beliefs will be off. If our beliefs are off, every single thing that flows from those beliefs will also be off, even if it's one degree. And I and you are not designed to live close enough. And we, I fear, in America, we have settled for being close enough and that being good. You know how like we, we, uh, today, when I was a kid, we didn't give everybody awards. 
Like when I was a kid, you either won or you lost. You know what I'm saying? Today, you either win or you get like, you also get a trophy. You know what I'm saying? Which is probably not a bad thing. I, I probably agree more with that anyway. But, but growing up, if you didn't get first place, you lost. Period. That's it. You know what I'm saying? And so when I played football, we never got in the locker room after a game that we lost by one point and said, hey, that's all right. We got close. No. You know what happened? The next day, we ran until we puked. You know what I'm saying? Right? And so at no point in our lives, if we have any type of competitive mind, which I have a really bad competitive mind, but at no point in our lives are we okay being close enough until we get to the Lord and all of a sudden, we're completely okay being close enough. And when I say close enough, what we really mean is miles apart. Because like I've said, yeah, like I've said, if you stay on one degree off of true north for long enough, you'll find yourself way off of true north down the road. So this is what happened. Is the early church, I told you this, the reason that John writes his gospel, which in my opinion makes it the best gospel, but that's just my opinion. The reason John writes his gospel is because, and we know this through reading the church fathers, this is a fact, that John sees later on in his life that already the church has started becoming a religious institution. That the Pharisees and all the religious people that had been saved and born again into this thing had brought with them the rules and regulations, and the church leaders had tried to marry the rules and regulations of Rome and the Jewish Old Testament law with the freedom of Christianity. John sees this happening, and they come to him and say, John, this is what hap what's happening. Can you write something that will anchor us in the truth of this? And he pins the book of John, which is why it's later. Then he also pins 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he has Revelation, which I don't think anybody really understands Revelation. And I, and I say that not because we're not supposed to understand it. I say that because we've seen it wrong. When we approach Revelation from the... Man, I'm about to get in a lot of trouble. When we approach Revelation from the view that this is all what's to come, it makes absolutely no sense. And I would argue that would make it really not... Should, it shouldn't be called Revelation. It should be called prophecy. prophecy. But unveiling, that's what Revelation means, maybe John was trying to give us insight into some things that have actually already happened. It's a lot. All right, so... You don't got to agree with me. We're not talking about Revelation. We still can be brothers and sisters. Okay. So Paul is saying here about being transformed into the image, not being transformed into the image of this age and the standards of this age, but being reformed um, or transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't let the thinking or beliefs of this current age be what determines what is true within you. Rather, let Holy Spirit birth your thinking and beliefs from the truth of God expressed in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't start with a belief system and try to find your way to truth. Start with truth and then let truth give birth to all of your belief system. Y'all with me? Okay. So, we, for example, do not believe, typically, typically, we don't believe that the gospel is he seeks until he finds. Typically, we believe the gospel is we seek until we find. Amen. Right? Tip, nine time, we believe that the gospel is we seek until we find what's right. One issue, Luke 15 says he seeks till he finds. Uh, right? Uh-oh. That's very different. One of those has a God sitting on his holy throne and on his holy behind, sitting back waiting for everybody to do what's right. One of those is a dad searching every corner of darkness to get his kids back. And that difference is what causes people to be completely apathetic towards the church and crying every time they hear one note of a song. That difference right there. Because if you believe that he is apathetic at best and waiting for you to do all the right things to come home, you'll never approach him and he'll always be distant. And you'll believe in a lie and build an entire belief system around something that isn't even true. But if you believe that he's good, and if you believe that he seeks until he finds, now we'll build an entire belief system about there is no distance that's even possible to be between us and him. John 1 says, in him was life. 
We could spend five years just on that one section right there. In him is life. What is he saying? All things exist through him. Apart from him, nothing exists that has existed. So then you start taking our whole statement of beliefs as an American Western church. That verse does not fit in there. Right? Because we think if you're not in the club, you're not in him. You're way out there. But John says, no, if you exist, you're in him. <laughs> all right. All right, all right, all right, all right. Well, so we, we find otherwise. He, we seek until we find. No, we find otherwise in Scripture. Why? We believe the love of God is accessible to a few rule keepers and everyone else is left in the dark. One other problem, Colossians 3.11 says this. That the Messiah is all in all. Not me, Colossians. Well, brother, you know, you know what that means. I absolutely know exactly what that means. That he's all in all. Here's what Colossians 1 says. All things exist through him and for him. And Luke 15, of course, says he seeks till he finds. So today... We're going to talk about, or we're going to see, why the testing of our faith is crucial in us knowing the love of God. Crucial. So, with all that, with some of you mad, let's, um, let's go, I'm just playing, I know none of y'all are mad. So let's just go to, uh, let, let me just read this real quick. Before we go to Luke, I want to read, don't turn there, Colossians 1, and I want to read 15 through uh, 23, because I think this gives us a really great view of what we're about to read in James. So, Colossians 1, verse 15 through uh, 23. Yeah, I'm going to try my best to stick to that, but I can't make any promises. He, Christ, is the divine portrait, the true likeness of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. For in him, in him, was created the universe. Say, in him. Thank you. In him was created the universe of things. I, now, I don't know about you. I pictured that God is out here somewhere in space, Trinity, and then he speaks, let there be light, and all of a sudden somewhere else out in space comes the globe. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. In him, the universe came into being. John says the same exact thing. Paul says the same thing all throughout his writings. So does everybody else. How, see, how is this different? You, you thought your whole life that you were running from the Lord. And I would argue that you actually were never running from the Lord. If anything, you were running to the Lord. You didn't even know it. Amen. All right. For in him was created the universe of things, both in the heavenly realm and on the earth, all that is seen and all that is unseen. Where? In him. Every seat of power, realm of government, principality, and authority, it all exists through him and for his purpose. Uh, okay. He existed before anything was made, and now everything finds completion in him. Some, I mean, some of y'all need to read this stuff sometimes. He is the head. He is the head of his body, which is the church. And since he is the beginning and the firstborn heir in resurrection, he is the most exalted one, holding first place in everything. For God is satisfied to find all of his fullness dwelling in Christ. And by the blood of his cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to himself, back to its original intent, restored to innocence again. That, why haven't we preached that gospel? That's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I read this stuff during this week, and I'm like, dear Lord. Like, I mean, the, the burn thing is awesome, but like, my, I would have ran and bowed at the feet of that. You know what I'm saying? Even though you were once distant from him, living in the shadows of your evil thoughts and actions, he reconnected you back to himself. 
He released his supernatural peace to you through the sacrifice of his own body as the sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. And now, right now, there is nothing between you and Father God, for he sees you as holy, flawless, and restored. Are are y'all hearing this? If indeed you continue to advance, this is why I wanted to read this because we're going to go talk about the testing of our faith. If indeed you continue to advance in faith, assured of a firm foundation to grow upon, never be shaken from the hope of the gospel that you have believed in, this is the glorious news I preach all over the world. Lord, there is nothing between you and Father God, for He sees you as holy, other than, unique, flawless, perfect, and completely restored. Well, why does He see you like that? Because what you've done? No, because of the sacrifice of His own body as the payment on your behalf. So, verse 23. Verse 23, it seems as if Paul is kind of giving a caveat right here. And I want to really, like, you know, dig deep into what he's saying here because it connects to James 1. So he gives this whole thing, and then verse 23 it says, If indeed you continue to advance in faith, assured of a firm foundation to grow upon. Faith and belief, just to be clear, in the Greek, biblical sense are not the same thing. Okay? In the English, they might be pretty much the same thing. In the Greek, they're not the same. So faith in the Greek, pistis, I've talked about this extensively in the past. But just to give you a background, faith, pistis, is God-given. Helps Word Studies says, and I think I even wrote this down. Maybe I didn't. Um, no, because I think I have it memorized. Helps Word Studies, which is one of the uh, translation um, helper tools, whatever you want to call it. Um, pistis means this. It's a God-given guarantee that what he spoke will come to pass. Faith, pistis is a God-given guarantee that what he spoke will come to pass. Next paragraph in the Helps Word Studies, it says this. It is always God-given, never man-produced. Though it involves man's trust, it does not affect the measure of faith that you've been given because it comes from God as a guarantee. So, God gives us faith as a guarantee that what he spoke will come to pass and we live aligned in that faith by trusting in in the faith that we've been given you you with me okay so belief is i believe in something faith is i've been giving some given something by god that i trust in the in the greek sense you ready okay so now, think of this when Paul he goes through all this stuff, and then he says, if indeed you continue to advance in faith, assured of a firm foundation to grow upon. What is he saying? Is he saying, if you keep believing, then you'll stick here? No, because faith, pistis, is God-given. What is he saying? If you continue to advance in that which was given to you, what was given to you? He says it right here. He released his supernatural peace to you through his sacrifice of his own body as a sin payment on your behalf so that you would dwell in his presence. If you continue in the reality of what Christ has given you, assured of that firm foundation, you will never be shaken from the hope of the gospel that you have believed in. That word believed is different than the word faith said earlier. Amazing, right? So you see how this kind of takes on a whole new life? Unbelievable, just because of understanding one thing. Now, with that in mind... um, I did write the Helps Word Study thing down. I was looking right at it. Um, but anyway, so with that in mind, go to James 1, and, uh, and I'm going to just read verses 1 through 8. And then i got to pull out some other notes that i got in here. i got so many notes today, I don't know how I'm going to stay, uh, stay online, but we'll, we'll try. So James 1, I'm going to read this in the NIV, and, uh, and we'll start at verse 1. You guys good? Okay, thanks, Brandon. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, very familiar, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Okay, very, very, very familiar passage. Now, I talked about this a little bit Tuesday night, but I'm going to just kind of recap for those who weren't here Tuesday night. How many of you, and this is me, grew up reading this verse and thinking when you read this, uh, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Uh, and when it talks about you, when you should ask, you should not doubt. You should believe because if you doubt, you're double-minded, you're tossed to and fro. How many of you, when you read through that as a kid, believe that what he was saying was, is he's going to reveal how much you don't believe so that you can learn how to believe so that you won't be double-minded? And when we said double-minded, you thought... Half of you believes and half of you doesn't believe. Does that hit anybody else? Right? When, I, when you read that, traditionally, you say that the Lord basically is going to send you through dark seasons to show you how much you don't believe, to show you how much you're double-minded, to show you how, much you, how far you've got to go. And somehow through that, he's going to get you there. Right? I mean, traditionally, that's, that's how we see that. So let me, let me just give you all the Greek words, or some of the Greek words, and then I'm going to read uh, my own translation, personally. So, um, you know, take it for what it is. If you don't like that, that's great. Um, verse 2, trials, the Greek word trials, parasmus, means experiment. It means experiment, okay? Um, which is trials, could work, same thing, great. Verse 3, knowing... The word knowing there is gnosko, gnosko, and it means experiential knowledge. So I could know about my wife or I could know my wife. Big difference. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so, it, so when he's saying know in verse 3, just to kind of remind you where, because you know the testing of your faith. That word know or knowing is gnosko, experiential. Okay? Testing. Dokimion, testing, the Greek word, means to prove something to see that it is genuine. Faith, the Greek word pistis, I just told you what that meant. Produces is a very big Greek word. The word produce means achieves or brings about. And then the word endurance means a remaining behind or a patient enduring. Okay, so if you translate this verse based on all the meanings that I just read and just kind of wrote out all the meanings rather than the actual word-for-word translation, here's what you would get. You ready? Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through experiments of many kinds because you know by experience that, listen to this, that when God proves the guarantee that he gave you is genuine, it brings about a patience that you can stand behind and trust in. See how this totally changes this. So so what is James saying? He's saying this, that we should rejoice when God sends us through experiments. Not because he's trying to show you how much you lack, but because he's proving to you that you can trust what has already been given to you. Let me say say it like this. And I said this Tuesday night, so if this is review, that's review. If you, when you're in school and you're doing experiments, science experiments, 100% of the time those experiments are controlled. So even if you mess it up, it's already been accounted for and there's already a plan in place to teach you what you need to learn out of that experiment. It's completely controlled. There's no chance of it to get chaotic. The teacher has it all under control. Amen? So when you're walking through experiments, what is the Lord doing? Or trials, if you want to use that, whatever. When you're walking through these, is the Lord saying, I'm going to send you through H-E-L-L. I know there's kids in here. I'm going to send you through this so that you can see how sorry you are 
so that on the other side, you'll learn to beat yourself up until you're not sorry anymore. Typically, pretty, I mean, I know it's a little exaggerated, but I mean, like, let's, let's just be honest. Instead, what James is saying is, here's what he does. He sends us through points where he proves what he spoke can be trusted in. Not to prove how much you lack, but to prove to you in your thinking that you lack, that you actually don't lack. Okay, okay, I don't think that hit. So, here, we believe the lie that we're having to earn something that we already have. This is just like the son in Luke 15, the older son. The father throws a party for the redeemed heir that comes home. The older son goes to the father. The father comes to him. And the older son's complaint is, you haven't given me what you're giving him. And the father says, what are you talking about? I've given you everything. Everything I have is yours. So the son was working his tail off to earn what he already had. This is what James is saying. James is saying that we will live a life with self-put handcuffs on ourselves, thinking that we don't have what we actually already have. So what the Lord will do will send us through experiments or trials to prove to us that we have what we don't believe we actually have. That is different from the other way. The other way is the Lord saying, I'm trying to prove to you how much you lack. What James is saying is the Lord is trying to prove to us how much we don't lack. Okay, let me give you another example. Veda in the pool. I shared this Tuesday night. Veda jumps like she'll run and jump as far as she can into the pool, but I catch her. She can't go underwater yet. She can. She doesn't like going underwater yet. So, uh, but every time she goes to jump, especially in the beginning, she doesn't do this as, as much anymore, but in the beginning when she was starting to jump into the pool, every time she would say, okay, I want to jump in the pool. So she would get out. She would go to the side. She would stand on the side, and we would spin 10, 15 minutes, me trying to convince her that it's okay, I will catch you. Right? And she's like, I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm, I'm catch you. No, I don't want to do this. No, I'll catch you. Let's go. But then there comes a point where it's just got to be like, listen, either you're going to run and jump, and you're going to have to trust me, or we're just not going to do this anymore. You know what I'm saying? And then, of course, she would run, she would jump, and I would catch her. And now, you know, we do that, the whole thing. So when we were doing that, what was not happening was me telling her, you're just going to have to jump. I'm not going to catch you, and you're just going to have to figure it out and learn how to swim. No. I was trying to tell her if she would just jump, I would catch her. We think the testing of our faith is the Lord saying, I'm going to send you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you can learn how to swim. And he's not. He's saying, I'm going to send you through the valley of the shadow of death so that you can be proven so that I can be proven that I've held you the whole time. That's the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith is, I'm not going to send you through this so that you can be self-sufficient. The testing of your faith is to prove to you that you don't have to be self-sufficient. In the other line of thinking, verses 5 through 8 make zero sense. Why would James go from the Lord revealing our level of belief to talking about wisdom? I said this Tuesday night. It makes no sense. It's completely random. But in this correct line of thinking, it makes total sense. That the Lord is pushing us off an edge, so to speak, not so we can see how good of a swimmer we are, but so that we can see that when he said he would catch us, he meant it. Wisdom teaches us who he is, which connects us to what he has spoken over us as trustworthy. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. What kind of wisdom? Wisdom in what he's trying to prove in you through the testing of your faith. Okay. So you're not walking through what you're walking through so that you can know how to do it better next time. You're walking through what you're walking through so that next time you can say with full confidence, I'm going to trust in the faithfulness of that which is in me because it came from the one who is love. Amen. All right. So let me read verses 6 and 7 and give you, give you uh, the Greek words for that. 
6 and 7. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all he does. Okay, so you must believe. The word you must believe should say this in the Greek. You should ask in faith. You must believe. The Greek word there is not the English, what we would translate belief. The Greek word there is still pistis, faith. So he's not saying when you ask, you better believe it. He's saying when you ask, you should ask in faith. What is faith? God-given. So it's just like we would say, you know, when you pray, pray in Jesus' name. We said that a lot, right? What we're not saying is, is you're trying to earn up a certain level where you can actually now pray in Jesus' name. No, when we say pray in Jesus' name, we're saying you're praying in the authority that you have no matter what you've done in Jesus' name. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, when you ask, you must do it in faith rather than in doubt. Okay, without doubting, you ready for this? Without doubting or to not doubt, the Greek word diakrino, diakrino is the Greek word, and here's what it means. You ready? It means to separate or to vacillate back and forth. It comes from two words. Dia, which means divided, and krino, which means at the root, it has the meaning of separation. Dia divided, krino, separation. Strong's Concordance says that this word could be and should be translated to be separated. So now, do you remember what we said about sin? We've been talking about this for weeks. Do y'all remember this? The word for sin in the Greek is hamartea. Ham with or ha without martea form. Without form. That's what the word sin means. Hamartea. So when Jesus becomes sin, he becomes the fault, the wrong form, so that we could inherit the right form, our original form. Okay? So all sins that flow from our life flow from the root of us living without form. Good? Okay. Just reading a little bit of Greek. So, sin without form or separated from form. However, sozoing, which is where we get the word save from, sozo, means that formlessness comes into its right form. Sozo means to be made well, to be healed, to be saved, to be rescued, to be redeemed, to be made whole. It means a plethora of, of things. We settled on salvation. You know, I think we could have settled on a, a way stronger word, but that's okay. Salvation. So sozo means something that is formless being brought back into its right form. Now, here's what Ephesians 2 says. Ephesians 2 says this. That form salvation comes through. What does Ephesians 2 say? Salvation comes through what? Faith. Pistis, not by works, faith. So Paul is saying that the answer to formlessness is faith, our inherited form. Now bring it back. So when you ask, you must believe and not doubt or without doubting. Separation. So what is James saying when he's talking about this right here? Here's what he's saying. He's talking about God Testing our lack of belief, or excuse me, is he, the question I should have asked, is he talking about God tempting us or testing our lack of belief to show us how little we believe? That can't be it. Because Jesus said if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. So even the logic of him trying to show us how little faith we have doesn't align with what Jesus himself said, which is even if you got this much, you could speak to an entire mountain and it would obey you. So even if you do have a little bit of faith, you're a real powerful person. So that can't be what he's trying to prove to us. Okay? On top of that, when Thomas doubted, did Jesus deny him and cut him off? No. His doubt gave him access to a proximity he didn't have before. So, so it can't be he's trying to prove us how much we doubt because every time we see doubt, the Lord takes hold of it and brings it into a place that it wasn't before through doubt. 
Look at, let, look at, let me read uh, 13 through 18 here in James 1. Let me, just, let me just read this for the fun of it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to hamartia, formlessness. And when that formlessness is full grown, it gives birth to death. So do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. There's the word truth. And we might, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So the, the, even the idea of the Lord tempting us, sending us through the valley to show us where we are, one problem is says that God doesn't do that and can't do that. So, so what is James talking about? James is talking about what we have been talking about for weeks, the undoing of Adam. Prove it. Awesome. In verses 6 through 8, if you break down the Greek, this is what this says. Verses 6 through 8. It says, when you ask, ask in the truth of what's within you and who you are, not the lie of separation. Because the one who lives in the lie of separation is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Remember that. By the wind. That person will not think of laying hold of anything from the Lord because they are two selves. That's what the word right there for double-minded. The, other, the translation that is a lot more accurate is two selves. So, they cannot expect to lay hold of anything from the Lord because they are two selves rather than one and are living out of control with no order at all. That's what the words, um, such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. The way you could translate, translate that is that they are living out of control with no order. Okay, so the one who is living in the lie of separation, in sin, in the lie of separation, the one who's living there is tossed by the wind. Check out what John 3, 8 says. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the what? Wind or spirit. Believing in a wrong truth or a lie about who you are causes that which comes by way of the Spirit to toss you like a wave. If the, if the Spirit, let's just, let's just for the fun of it, if the Holy Spirit showed up in just a random church, uh, I won't give any, any names, if the, if the Holy Spirit showed up in just a random, typical American Western uh, denominational church right now, if the Holy Spirit blew through it, do y'all know what would happen? rejection. You know what I mean? No, thank you. We don't want that. Right? The one living in a life separation is tossed by the same wind that another group of people, 120 in an upper room, were giving, giving life through. Same wind. One living in a false identity is tossed by the wind. The other living in faith, that which is given by God, is empowered by the wind. So, so believing in a wrong truth causes that which comes by way of the Spirit to toss you like a wave. So God is proving to us through controlled experiments, if you will, that everything that He is, that we are, and the creation is, that has been reconciled by way of the cross can be trusted in. However, if we fail to let him convince us of this, we'll continue to carry two realities or identities within, and in that place we lay hold of absolutely nothing. That's why we have been stagnant for years. Not we, but like the, the typical church, stagnant for years. Because you can't take hold of anything when half of you is still in Adam and half of you is in Christ. Let's say it more accurately. When 90% of you is in Adam, but 10% of you that repeated the prayers in Christ. You, you can't lay hold of anything. 
And the reason is, is the same reason I just talked about tithing. It's a stewardship issue. If the Lord releases new wine to somebody who is mo- or a group of people who is mostly Adam, what does he say? If new wine is poured into an old wineskin, the wineskin bursts and the wine is wasted. So it's goodness that withholds new wine until a wineskin submits to the process of dying and becoming new. But when you become new, new wine is completely effortless. That which would have destroyed you in an old identity now gives you purpose and life. So when the Lord comes to us and he starts whispering things like, and I love using this example because it's the most extreme example of Jesus. So the most extreme thing he ever said that I talk about on a weekly basis is eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no part in me, right? The most extreme thing he says. So he says that. All the, he just fed the 30,000, however many thousand people were there, including women and children, um, 5,000 men plus all the women and children. They all come. Jesus feeds them. This is an amazing miracle. This is awesome. We love this. We're starving. Free food, you know. And um, so the next morning, Jesus goes across the lake. The next morning, they wake up, and they're like, we're hungry. And we're out here, and we're, let's just go find Jesus. Maybe he'll feed us again, you know. So they go find Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them. Y'all are always looking for, like, for food. You know, you're always doing this. And, uh, and they're like, well, Jesus, look, if you just, just feed us again, like, we'll believe what you're saying. And he says, all right, I'll feed you. Eat me and drink me or you'll have no part in this. And you, to read, go back and read this. To see, the, they say, literally, it says, does this man expect us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? So he says that for 30,000 possibly people, that tossed them like a wave. For 12 he turns around and says, y'all going to leave too? And they say, where else would we go? In other words, 30,000 heard that and were tossed aside. Not because he wanted to toss them aside, but because they had failed to die to Adam. Repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. They haven't changed their way of thinking. Twelve have. So he says one thing that rejects 30,000 people, and that same thing causes 12 to say, we can consume it now. What? You, right? You know what I'm saying? So, so this is what James is saying. James is saying that the Lord's going to send us through a process that will kill Adam if we'll let it. So that on the other side, he, he can begin to give us whispers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are called to hear the whispers that no ear has heard, see things that no eye has ever seen, and process things that no mind has comprehended. That's what we are designed for. However, we cannot contain that right now in this line of thinking. Well, Josh, prove it. I've said some stuff lately that lines straight with Scripture, and people have kicked back because it doesn't line up with certain beliefs that they had inherited. And Lord, if y'all think that what the Lord's been saying lately is like, man, this is groundbreaking revelation. No, this is, this is like... Stuff we should have gotten as babies. This is like the, I mean, Lord, this ain't even meat. This is like, this ain't even milk. This is like formula. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just like, Lord, but what, what are we going to do when the Lord starts actually saying stuff that no, because this message right here is original. The whole early church, this, you walk into an early church, they'll, they'll teach the love of God, Trinity, the whole thing, who we are, reconciliation, all that. You'd hear that. Nothing new. So this isn't what no eye has seen, no ear has heard. This is heard. This has been seen. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard is stuff that the Lord, and this is real dangerous, but I'm okay with that, is the Lord starting to whisper things to us and show us things that you might not be able to find something for. Hello? See, even when I say that, something inside of you is like, well, I don't know about that, brothers, the you know, divine word. No, no, no. Here's what this is. Absolutely. Divine word of God. Absolutely. You know what this is? This is the door, not the ceiling. I'm about, you, you, you won't get this. No matter how much you pay to go to an event, you won't get this, what I'm about to say. So it's free. This right here, this right here, we've made it the ceiling. And we've said this is the most that I can get. 
This, John did not write his gospel to say, this revelation I'm writing is the most you'll ever get, and I hope you get there. He wrote his gospel to say, this is your starting point. When Paul, is being, when Paul is being persecuted, he writes in 2 Timothy, this has become one of my favorite verses. He writes this and says, hey, I don't know if you've heard, but all of Asia has left me. <laughs> Everybody's gone. We had a great exploding ministry, but I don't know if any of y'all heard this. They're all, they all left. I'm basically alone. So Paul, you know what I mean? Like That's where Paul is towards the end of his life. And now, thank God, he didn't quit when everybody started leaving. But he starts preaching things like Colossians 1 that I just read. And you read some of that stuff, and that flies in the face of Pharisee. Flies Because the Pharisees and the religion and the West and America and all that we have built our entire church system just like we have built our entire political system and just like we built our entire governmental system. We have made this democracy that everybody's got a say and everybody's got a voice. And here's the thing in the kingdom. Not everybody has a voice. One has a voice, and his name is Jesus. What we are called to do is hear what we have heard from the Lord that unites the body together and move off of the cloud, not say, this is our beliefs, this is what we've inherited, this is what we're going to do, and Lord, you better submit to it or we're going to do something else. Amen, amen, amen. Let me, let me, let me. I got, a lot of, I got a lot of rabbit trails I just wrote down, but I'm, I'm going to chase only a couple. Matt, can you come up here? Um, okay. The only reason we would be frustrated with a process or a storm is if we haven't truly been rooted in who we are, which is not a belief issue. Primarily, it is a truth issue. All of us believe. All of us believe in something. Right? I mean, you don't have to say right. We, all of us believe. Okay? So, so for example, like a, a Calvinist believes with everything in him or her of uh, predestination. It's not in the Bible. They believe it. You know what I'm saying? Believe. So all of us believe in something. Some of you might believe in I'm going to hold Adam right here, and I'm going to hold Christ right here, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life vacillating between the two. You may not say you believe that, but Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. Okay? So you're spending your whole life, and you're holding Adam here, and slavery here, and condemnation here, and old identity here. But then there's another part of you, it might just be your pinky, that's holding Christ right here, and you're praying to God that you can die before you let go of one side of it. And the Holy Spirit's job is to be in between to keep you from vacillating too far back and forth. And what the gospel says is there's nothing over here to hold. Even if you have your hand out here, there's air. There's nothing here. The only thing there is to hold is this because of the cross. That's it. That's it. That's what I just read in Colossians. He became sin to become the sin payment so that those in sin could become righteousness because of the sin payment on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the stuff that we celebrate at Easter and don't have a clue what we're talking about. This is the stuff that we celebrate at Christmas. That I'm telling you, Christmas this year, we're going to have a party because God becoming a baby dependent on a mother to feed him so that we could get our identity back? How dare us look at this scene and the cross and Jesus, God, being a carpenter for most of his life? God, for 30 years, 30 out of 33 years on the earth, no one knew that he was even there because he was just the kid down the street making tables. And you think your life is insufficient and it's not adequate enough because you're doing something that isn't ministry. You are. I don't believe Jesus could have done what he did in three years if he hadn't done what he did in the first 30 years. So, I mean, some, man, uh, this job I'm at is just absolutely just makes no sense. I don't know why I'm here. I'm not passionate about this. And I don't know, maybe Jesus was passionate about making tables. Maybe he was. I would dare say... Maybe not. You know, I don't know. Maybe he was. But I guarantee you, Jesus knew on his mind 
that there is a day coming when I am going to be beat to shreds so that I can get all my people back. Knowing that, he still for years went to a normal job, did a normal thing, and was convinced that all he needed to be was in proximity with his father until his time came. If I ask you what was Jesus called to do, you would say die on the cross. Right? However, he's, if that's the case, he spent most of his life doing something he was not called to do. I believe, and I said this last week, that our calling has nothing to do with what we do primarily. It has everything to do with who we are and who we are produces what we do. So in 30 years, Jesus was in his calling because he was becoming everything the Father designed him to become that would ultimately bring fulfillment in what he did on the cross. I know I'm losing some of y'all. Even, even think about this, even the blood, the blood is amazing. Did you know, and I'm gonna really, really, really help you. In the Old Testament, do you know what the primary reason for the shed blood was? For, it was for sins. But it was to cleanse the place of worship from the sins. But then there was a scapegoat that Aaron would place his hands on the head of, confess all the sins for the people, and the scapegoat would go running into the wilderness. That was for the people. So, when Jesus is dying on the cross and the blood was being poured, you remember how I taught about the creation being a temple months ago? Do y'all remember that? When he's dying on the cross and his blood, he's becoming the scapegoat for us in our sins and his blood is being poured out to cleanse his temple for new creation again. Last thing, last thing, last thing. Testing of our faith, last thing. I want to talk just for a second about uh, pruning because this goes right along with the testing of our faith. We have, and I shared this with some of y'all last Tuesday or the Tuesday before, Veda has planted some flowers in our uh, yard and uh, she planted them in spring and I did not know this until I read the little packet on the seeds. So when you uh, plant flowers, you dig up a hole uh, and you're supposed to put like one or two or three seeds in, depending on what you're planting, and then move like six feet away or six inches away, you know, and do more and all that stuff. So what, what we did, gardening, so what we did was dug up a hole, and Veda just took the whole packet and just dumped the whole thing in. So there's like 100 seeds or whatever in there. And um, so we're like, you know, whatever. It's, we'll just see what happens. And uh, But I read it. So I don't know if you've ever read these. Did you know that when the, if you do it right, when the flowers start to grow, there comes a point when you're supposed to look at these, this cluster of flowers, see which one is actually growing healthily and pluck out the other ones. Do you know this? So that the one that's growing can get all the nutrients to become everything that it's designed to become. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Bill Johnson says that pruning is a blessing for bearing fruit, not a curse. If you're bearing fruit, he's gonna start to pluck. Why? Because there's things in our lives, this is the testing of our faith, there's things in our lives that unless they get plucked from us, will never become everything we were designed to become. And the primary thing that I believe the Lord is plucking from us, at least he's doing from me, is any shred of Adam that is still left in me. If, I, if there is a centimeter of Adam still left, I told the Lord, I want you to send me through the, the testing of my faith over and over and over until I am convinced that I am no longer in Adam. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And that's not a fun prayer because you know what he's been doing for the past few months? For me, you know what he's been doing for the past few months? Boop, 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 boop. You know, plucking. Fear of man, that, that's one I'm still walking through. Like, doubting, doubting who I am and my calling. 
to be something, not to do something, but to be who I am, doubting that, the Lord's saying, I'm going to send you through seasons where all you hear is what you are not until you are convinced of who you are, so much so that when people say what you are not, it doesn't even phase you. That's the testing of your faith. Now I could look at that and say, well, Lord, when somebody, well, Josh, man, you're just, you're just, you know, whatever. Uh, when somebody says that, I could say, you know what, maybe I am. Or I could say, nope, I know who I am. And the Lord is so loving that he will allow us to face that thing until we're convinced of what is reality. The only, I, taught, I taught this weeks ago. There is one image. There is one image. There's not a thousand. There's not two. There's one image, and it's God's. The devil has no image. You weren't made in the image and likeness of the devil. I don't care how bad you are. Every human being was made in the image and likeness of God. There's one image. That means if you're not fully bearing the image of God, you're not bearing another image. You're living in a lie that you're not in an image that you're actually in. So I'm going to pray. And here's what I want to do. I want to do two things. I really, I want to give, I don't want to, I, don't, I guess I don't call it an invitation. But what I want to do is I want to give us an opportunity. And because we've moved everything to the stage, our altar is kind of sparse. But, um, you know, pray wherever you are. If you want to come up here, you can. But I just uh, want to take a few minutes while Matt plays. And I want us to give the Lord permission to experiment with what needs to be experimented within us, number one. But then number two, I feel like a lot of you are actually walking through this right now. And maybe you didn't know it until today. Maybe you thought that you were walking through the Lord showing you where you lacked. And if you lack, it's not because the Lord's showing you where you lack. If you lack, it's because you've bought into the fact that you lack. And maybe he's trying to reveal the lie. But what you've been walking through is the Lord trying to prove to you that if you will jump in the pool, he'll catch you. That the Lord's been trying to prove to you that he's not trying to teach you how to swim. He's trying to teach you to trust that you'll be caught 100% of the time. So I'm going to pray. And then uh, and we're just going to take a minute, like I said. And if you want to go ahead and kind of, if you need to come up here, if you want to pray there, that's, that's fine. But I'm just going to pray over us as we, as we just spend a few minutes with the Lord solidifying this in us. Um, and I also, y'all just bow your heads and close your eyes too. I want to ask this question too. Um, and I know this isn't necessarily a super salvation-y message, um, but is there anybody in the room that you feel like maybe you've never had a genuine relationship with Jesus? Um, and you just throw your hand up. There may, may not be in the room, but like maybe you've repeated a prayer. Maybe you've done the religious thing, but like you've never had a genuine relationship, experiential relationship with Jesus. Is there anybody in the room you can raise your hand? Anybody? Awesome. Awesome. So here's what we're doing. I'm going to pray, and then you guys just pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would solidify a lot of this in us today. Uh, start with me. Lord, we invite you to poke and prod at the places in us that are not designed to be in us. We are designed to bear fruit, abundant fruit, if we'll just abide in you. If we'll make our habitation in you. So Lord, I commit right now that we as a church family, I commit that we will be a family that is okay with what no eye has seen, no ear has heard. That does not mean we're gonna stray from anything. That means we're gonna go deeper deeper into the foundation than we've ever gone before. It's not a mile wide and an inch deep. It's an inch wide and a mile deep. And I, I just believe that the world around us that is in chaos and obscurity and darkness, that as we as a family begin to flip the lights on, they are going to come alive in who not only they are, but the creation is. All of creation is standing on tiptoe, yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. So Yahweh, we love you in this place. I pray over every person under the sound of my voice. 
I pray that you would give us this zeal to pursue you. I pray that you would just just demolish every apathetic piece of us that we have brought to you. The summer is such an easy time to slide into a half-hearted way. So easy. And Lord, I pray that you would just remove that mindset in us right now as we prepare to go into the fall in the next couple of months. Would you just bring us back into alignment with the zeal of the Lord that has not only called us by our real name, but has reformed us into what we were designed to be from the very beginning. Lord, we love you in this place. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.